0: Well, why don't you uh, find your seats and please open your Bibles and uh, go with me to the book of Mark. It's the last time you're going to hear me say that for a little bit of time, all right? So uh, we want you to have a copy of God's Word, and if you don't have one, our ushers are coming around you and just get their attention. We want you to have... A copy of the Bible uh, in your hands, or you can follow along with us on the Bible app. We love to study this together, and it's kind of hard to believe, but today we are going to be finishing the book of Mark. We're going to be in chapters 15 and 16, and I know, uh, believe it or not, it has taken us over a year to do this. I know we've kind of taken some breaks here and there. Uh, It's a pretty cool thing that we get to do, uh, finish this out. And Mark has really been trying to answer for us two questions. Who who is this guy Jesus? And, and then what does it mean to be his disciple? How do we follow him? And I'm praying, my, my heart in this is that, that your faith is increasing in the person of Jesus and that you want to follow him with a, a passionate uh, abandon and a love for Christ that just, there's there's nothing else. Like he is number one. Uh, I want to get rid of everything else and and pursue him and, and live for him. I'm praying that that is what has been true uh, as we're studying this together. But uh, the story of Mark really culminated like we saw last week on the cross and uh, the centurion's confession as he looked up and he saw uh, the way that Jesus died. He said, truly, this was the Son of God, confirming the claim that Mark had made all the way back at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, uh, the Son of God. He is. And now um, Jesus has died, but we get this shocking conclusion here. Chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 40. Follow along with me as I read here. This is right after uh, Jesus has died on the cross and the centurion made his confession. Verse 40 says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Siloam, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, I know, like, some of you are like, man, I wish it was Easter, because if it was Easter, that would mean it was spring, and summer would be just around the corner, as many of you have just admitted you're praying for. Uh, But there's something far greater than the fact that summer is on its way. He is risen! Isn't that awesome news? That's what we've come to celebrate, and honestly, uh, I I know the story's familiar, but this really shouldn't surprise us, because uh, Jesus told us ahead of time that this was going to happen. Remember, remember all the times in, in chapter 8, and again in chapter 9, and then again in chapter 10, he had told them that he was going to die on the cross, but that wasn't the end. That he was going to come back to life, and here he is. He's alive. The resurrection proves that Jesus really is who he says he is, and we can trust him. Like this, I, I want I want us to... Uh, understand why this doctrine of the resurrection is so important for us. Uh, Here's here's the words of Paul, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of the greatest chapters on this doctrine. Uh, Here's what Paul says, he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. See, here's, here's here, can I just be honest with you? If this didn't happen, then stop bothering with, gathering together with people like this on a Sunday and, and, and honestly, you can stop worrying about anybody else in your life and, and, and just go live it up and try to get as much happiness as you possibly can while it lasts because in the end, there really is no purpose. Who's to tell us that there's any meaning in any of this and that there's any hope? Right? But if he did this, then it actually proves that Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sins and death has been defeated. If this is true, it changes everything. And so I think we, we, when we come to the doctrine of the resurrection, uh, there's a couple questions we ought to be asking ourselves. We ought to ask, like, did this really happen? Is it true? And does it blow you away? And do you have a fire inside of you to go spread the word and let other people know? In fact, that's the big idea of our text. If you're taking notes this morning, note this. Here it is. We are called to go and proclaim the shocking truth that Jesus rose from the dead. It is shocking, and it is crazy. It's, it's an awesome story, but, but the fact that it is true, that resurrection should, should lead us to live and Let's go and spread the word, right? So I think uh, we've got three reactions uh, to this shocking truth that I want to show you here in the text. If you're taking notes, here's one. Here's what we need to start with. Uh, do this. Examine the evidence. Fair? Let's, let's examine the evidence. We need to know, um, did Jesus really rise from the dead. Did this really happen? Weirdly enough, I think the first thing that we actually have to do um, is is prove that Jesus actually died. And some people are actually going to try to uh, refute the resurrection um, by this this claim, this theory, uh, that Jesus didn't actually die. uh, That that somehow um, he survived the cross, and, and, and it, you know, they thought he was dead, and he passed out, and it looked like he was dead. And so they uh, buried him. They wrapped him up. They stuck him in the tomb. And then when he was in the tomb, the, the cool air in the tomb kind of revived him. And, and despite his wounds and all of that, he somehow managed to get the strength to be able to roll the stone away and, and escape um, so that he's, he, it didn't actually happen. He didn't rise from the dead. Or at least he escaped long enough to make it look like a resurrection, then he went off and died somewhere else. So I think, honestly, we need some proof that he died. And guess what Mark gives us? Mark actually gives us some proof of death. Look at verse 40. We get these women looking on at a distance. Um, there's eyewitnesses. Uh, these, these, these women uh, were there. They saw him. In fact, he, he gives us, uh, their specific names. He calls them by name, he, two, two Marys and a, and a Salome. He's really trying to help you understand this is an actual historical event, and people were there. They saw it. These women become the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and they're actually uh, praised for their ministry. Verse 41 tells us that they were, uh, these women were following him. They ministered to him. Many women came up with him to, to Jerusalem. I just, I actually love that these women, uh, They're the ones that are demonstrating for us what it means to be a disciple. They're following as eyewitnesses, but then we also get this other eyewitness. Verse 42 tells us there's a guy named um, Joseph of Arimathea, and and he is a a respected member of the council. Apparently, he's, he's one of the religious leaders in the Sanhedrin, the text says, who is also himself looking for the kingdom of God. It's a little shocking, right? Like he, apparently this guy is not on board with them murdering Jesus, and, and he seems to have a love for Jesus, maybe believes that he really is the Messiah. And out of that he, he took courage and he, and he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Christ. And this is a little shocking. We would, we would expect this religious leader to be an enemy. Like, they're always butting heads, and, and honestly, they're part of the reason that Jesus is even on the cross, and so we wouldn't expect the religious leader uh, to, to, to do this, but he becomes a disciple and another eyewitness to his death. He was there. And then he shows this boldness, and then we get some more proof here that he actually died. Verse 44, by the time that he asks for the body, uh, the text says that Pilate is surprised to hear that he should have already died. And the reason for this is that, that oftentimes, um, the crucifixion, um, victims of the crucifixion, could actually last for a couple of days. I mean, as horrible as this was, the Romans knew how to stretch this torture out. And, and, and oftentimes, it would take a really long time for somebody to uh, to finally die. And so, so Pilate's like, man, we just put him on the cross this morning. So, so what he does is he summons the centurion. Now, the centurion is going to become for us the professional expert witness, okay? It's his job, along with the other soldiers that are there, to kill him. This is what they do. They know what they're doing. They're professionals at this, and they were there, and And the centurion, uh, as soon as he asks him, confirms and, and in some ways uh, certifies his death. He's dead. Not to mention that... that um, uh, Joseph, then, the, uh, this disciple, ends up actually touching his, his, his dead body and, and wrapping him up and laying him in a tomb. And you would think that if, if there was any signs of life, he would have been excited about that. And uh, there wasn't because he wasn't alive. And verse 47 tells us that uh, there's those women again. They saw it, they saw him die, and uh, they saw where he was buried. Mark's trying to just make it really clear for us, okay? Jesus actually died. So we've got proof of death. Now we need some proof of life if we're going to prove the resurrection. And here we are, verse, or chapter 16, verse 1. Here the women are again. And now it's Sunday morning. And... Um, because, remember, they were there. They saw the place. They know exactly where to go. They, they remember which tomb it was. And so you can just uh, picture them in the morning, early in the morning. Honestly, they probably still overcome with grief and they're just overwhelmed with this and they're mourning. And, uh, but they're kind of talking about this like, when, when we get there, how in the world are we going to get that, that stone out of the way? And I've got a, a picture of a first century tomb uh, that I got to visit uh, while I was there in Israel. And you can see this kind of a massive stu- uh, stone and, and uh, the one that was in front of Jesus' tomb might have been even bigger than that. You can kind of see uh, my archaeologist friend Joel Kramer uh, off to the right there. This was actually just a first century tomb uh, that was kind of in the middle of nowhere, west of Nazareth, literally on the side of the road. I have no idea how he knew it was even there. Uh, but nobody else was around, and so I got the opportunity to even go. In the next picture, I got to go inside of this thing, and, and you can kind of see, uh, kind of off to the right there, these, these little uh, slots there that they would carve into the stone where they would uh, place uh, the bodies. Now this was a first century tomb, you could just imagine them uh, trying to uh, figure out how in the world were we going to be able to get into this thing after it's been sealed, Um, and obviously this is not the tomb of Christ, Um, some of you might have actually been there. If you've ever been uh, to Jerusalem, if you have been uh, to the church of the Holy Sepulcher, this place right here, this is likely the spot. Uh, where Jesus was crucified and uh, where his tomb was uh, close by. And, and I know um, when, when you're there in, in the middle of the church with all sorts of stuff happening, it's kind of hard to really feel it and imagine it. It was easier when we were in that first century tomb where nobody else was around. Uh, but this is where it's happening. And, and, and the women are coming here trying to figure out how, how in the world are we going to get in? How do we how do we get past that stone? But the, the the shocking thing, verse four, is they said when they got there, the stone had already been rolled back. And so. That, that kind of takes them off guard a little bit, like, like what's happening? Like, what, what, what's going on here? And the text says that they entered the tomb and saw a man sitting on the right side, dressed in a, in a white robe. So, so obviously, this is an angel, and, and, and uh, the fact that they say that he was on the right side, that's just kind of one of those details that you would recall from an actual memory. Like you're telling the story, like I remember, like I walked in and he was right there on the side. And, and they see this guy uh, not expecting to see this, and so they're understandably kind of freaking out in this moment. And the, uh, the angel says, verse 6, do not be alarmed, which is what all good angels have to say when they've basically just about given somebody a heart attack, trying to calm them down. But uh, this is important for us. Okay, listen, the angel is going to give us supernatural testimony to the resurrection, he knew why they were here. You, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. It says, who is crucified? I think that's interesting. He's, uh, the angel is actually adding his testimony to the fact that Jesus was crucified and he was actually dead as well. And now you're looking for him. I mean, why else would you be here? And you came to the right tomb. You, you knew the place. The only problem is he has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? So, so now we have the evidence of the empty tomb. And he's basically telling them, look, examine the evidence. You have to explain how there's an empty tomb. This is, this is right where he was. You saw that. You, were there. you saw where they laid him. He's not here anymore. How do you explain that? Well, the angel tells us. He he gives us his testimony. He tells us why he's not here anymore. It's because Jesus rose from the dead just as he said he would. So here's what we got. We've got the evidence of the empty tomb and the angelic supernatural testimony. And we've got women as eyewitnesses that are then told to go and spread the news now incidentally if if you're if you're like if this didn't happen, and let's just say that you were trying to make it up like you were trying to tell the story and trick people into believing this, but you knew that it really didn't happen and you're writing this in the first century, you would not have used women as your key witnesses unfortunately, in that culture um, it, it's it's just different okay they they did not see women as a credible witness. So if you're trying to make this up and get people to believe it, they're not the first ones you wanted of the two. You'd pick somebody like, like Joseph of Arimathea. I mean, he's a, he's a respected counsel. You know, he, he, he's a, a religious, leader. what a cool story that would be, right? Like this, this religious leader there, the enemies of Jesus, and then he turned into a disciple and he was the first one and he saw it and he can verify. That's not what happened. I love the fact that God doesn't care about any of that. The reason the women are the first eyewitnesses is because he had changed their hearts. He he had done a work in their lives so that they loved Jesus. And as they go to care for his body, the reason they're the eyewitnesses is that they were there. It actually happened and they saw the empty tomb. I hope all of this, what Mark is giving us is is encouragement, and and maybe, uh, hopefully, this encourages your faith, that our faith is grounded in historical fact with evidence. This actually happened. Yes, it's a shocking truth, but it is truth. And this is what we're called to go and, and share. And I realize that some people... And I, I totally understand this, okay? You've had these conversations. I know you've wrestled with this a little bit, that, that um, you, you might feel like it, it's okay to believe that, um, but people will say, you shouldn't try to convert anybody. And, and, it's, and it's arrogant to say um, that, that your one religion is better than uh, another. Have you heard anything like this before? Okay. Um, I get it. And honestly... We do need to be respectful about the way that we're talking about this and the way that we're interacting with people. And and we don't have to be jerks in the way that we talk about it. But if you're staying silent, and the reason you're staying silent is because you don't want to offend anybody and you don't want to come across as arrogant. Listen, listen. It's not loving or respectful to hold back the truth from people that can save them. Think about what's happening here. Jesus predicted his death and resurrection ahead of time. Like a prophet would predict something's going to come true. He said it was going to happen before it happened. So if it's not true, then he's just a dead false prophet. And forget about him. But if he did it, if he did what he said he was going to do, then we have to trust that he is who he says he is. And, and look at who we've seen uh, Jesus declare himself to be in the, in the gospel of Mark. And in, in chapter 2, verse 10, here's, here's what he says. The son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Do we believe him? That he's the one who has the authority? Then in chapter 10, verse 45, hopefully, hopefully you know this one by now. That he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the reality is that all of us, everybody, whether they believe it or not, all of us are in need of forgiveness from God. And forgiveness is only through Jesus because he died on the cross for us. And the resurrection proves that we're forgiven. Tim Keller has given us this illustration. I want to read it for you. I think this is such a helpful, such a helpful way to think about what's happening here. He says, after a criminal does his time in jail, so we got somebody doing jail time, okay? After he does his jail time and fully satisfies the sentence, the law has no more claim on him and he walks out free. Makes sense. Well, Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins. That was an infinite sentence. But he must have satisfied it fully, because on Easter Sunday, he walked out free. The resurrection was God's way of stamping, paid in full, right across history, so that nobody could miss it. That's the good news that we're celebrating. And if he is alive, and the evidence is there to suggest and tell us, Jesus is alive, and so his death has paid for your sins, and you are forgiven. Praise God. Do you you know anybody that needs to hear that? Well, then then here's the second reaction. Uh, Note this. Uh, here's Here's our second reaction that we see here. Go, but go because of grace. Go because of grace. I love verse seven. 7. Verse 7 is such a, a ray of hope for sinners. Look at, look at what the angel tells him. He says, uh, but go, tell his disciples and Peter. You're like, oh yeah, heaven, I forgot about those guys. We haven't, we haven't heard from them in a while. Where are those guys? Well, well you remember all of the disciples uh, after uh, the last supper when they were in the garden and, and Jesus was arrested in, in chapter 14, verse 50. After he got arrested, it said that they all, Every single one of them left him and fled. And then we pick up with Peter, and he's kind of making emphasis there because Peter had, you know, he had at least followed at a distance, but then we know that he ended up even just denying that he even knew Christ. And at the end of chapter 14, we left Peter just broken down and weeping. Every single one of them had successfully proven that they were all failures. They're a mess. Can anybody relate to that? Anybody else struggle with sin? Okay, I see a couple people laughing. Honestly, I think, some, I was wrestling with this. I think maybe some of you were even struggling with coming here this morning because of how you failed this week. You feel that? And almost that sense of, like, shame and guilt, and maybe some, you're just feeling tired of failing and living in sin. You know, it's actually worse. I I know what it feels like to to know, like, it's not like I didn't know any better. I've been walking with Jesus for years, and I've seen God do incredible things, and and I've had some sweet times with God, and still fell right back into sin. And it's in those moments that you just feel so defeated and and hopeless, and there's so much guilt, and there's so much shame. Well, Well, here's God's message for those guys. Here's what he says. Go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going before you to Galilee. Now they're, 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 they're at this point, they're, they're still reeling from all of this. And they're, uh, they're, they're, they're overcome with this sense of, of shame and guilt and, and fear. And yet, Jesus is giving them an invite to the Easter after party. I think about what he could have told them. He could have said to the angel, like, go, go tell those guys, I told you so. Some friends, you are. You shouldn't have left me all alone like that, right? I mean, Jesus would have had every right to say that. We know like, Jesus is really kind, so he wouldn't have said that. Maybe he would have said something a little bit more. He might have asked like, a question like, 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 why didn't you trust me? But that's not what he says. Look at, look at what he says. He says, uh, go tell them he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You are going to see him. You're going to have a personal encounter with the risen Lord. And get this, get this. Jesus wants to see you again. Even after you've rejected him, he's not rejecting you and the angel says, just as he told you. Do you remember that? Remember that, guys? Remember all the way back when Jesus was telling you this was going to happen ahead of time? Jesus knew that they were going to fail. He knew that they, were gonna, uh, that they were going to give up and, and run away. And even though they were adamantly insisting that it wasn't going to happen, they would never do that after the Last Supper. Do you remember this? Chapter 14, here's what Jesus said. This is ahead of time. He told them, you will all fall away. But after I am raised up, like he knew it was coming, I will go before you to where? Galilee. He knew that they were going to fail, but he also knew that he was going to restore them. And so this invitation to come back to Galilee is just full of grace and full of hope. And I I, I just want to encourage, I don't know if you're wrestling with this, if you feel uh, overwhelmed by guilt and shame, it doesn't matter how bad it's been. It doesn't matter what you did. He still wants to see you again. He wants to see you again. He wants to commune with you. He wants that relationship. We never have to fear that. And he's sending them to Galilee, because it's in Galilee that he's going to commission them to go live sent, and go carry out the great commission, to go and make disciples of all nations, which honestly, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, because these guys have massively failed already. They, they don't deserve to be a part of what God is going to do now, and this, this, this great movement, and, and the, the mission that God has given them, but that's God's grace. It is God's grace that he would use any of us to be a part of his mission. So church, we're going to live set. We want to go. But the reason that we go is because of grace. We are called to go and proclaim the shocking truth that Jesus rose from the dead. Think about that. That that God, he's placed you here in northern Virginia. He sent you here for a reason. But living sent starts from a, a position of humility because of the grace that we've received. So we're not, we're not arrogantly beating people over the head with our arguments. We're humbly and loving, lovingly just sharing how God has saved us, even though we didn't deserve it. And he can do the same for them. That there's salvation in no other name. That the curtain has been torn. The way is open. And we can have a relationship with God. And I'm, I'm, I'm so encouraged by those of you who have, have just been so faithful at this. You challenge me. I love that. I know some of you are you're praying for boldness right now because there's some people that you know and, and they're on your heart and you've been thinking about it and the, uh, you have influence there and, and, and you, don't wanna, you don't wanna be afraid, you don't wanna miss those opportunities so you're praying that God would give you that boldness to go and share the gospel. and I know some of you have already been doing that and you're just praying for faithfulness right now. It's like you've tried and you're just praying that God's gonna help you to just keep, keep sharing the truth with them. And some of you are praying for, for fruit Is that that person you've been trying to share the gospel with and it's been consistent? and It just seems like they're not getting it. You're praying that God's going to do a work in their heart. I just encourage you, let let grace, let the grace of God be the thing that motivates us to keep going. Here's the third response, all right? The third response to this shocking truth, note this. Make your next move. Make your next move. Verse 7 tells us that the, the women were called to go tell his disciples. So they had a job too. They, they've got a job to do. But, but here's what happens. Verse 8 uh, it says they, they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had, had seized them. And they said nothing to anybody because they were afraid. That's not exactly the response we were kind of hoping to see out of them, right? I mean, just... You put yourself in their shoes. Just remember, they went, they went expecting to handle this, this, this dead body and anoint uh, Jesus' body with spices, and instead they found the dead man is alive, and they're so, they're so shocked by this and so scared that they ran away without obeying the angel's command, at least not right away. And that's how the story ends. I know you've got a bunch more verses in your, in your Bible, um, but if you're reading in the ESV, uh, there's, there's a, a note right here in parentheses, in, in brackets, in all uh, caps that says some of the earliest manuscripts uh, do not include verses 9 through 20. And uh, if you're reading in the NAS, it'll also be in brackets. Uh, The ESV will put it in double brackets. If you're reading in the NIV, it'll be in italics. If you're reading in the New King James, it'll be a big uh, footnote there to let you know that this section, 9 through 20, was not uh, included in some of the earliest manuscripts. There's a major question as to whether these verses here uh, were actually Mark's original ending or not. I want to help you understand this a little bit as best as I can, okay? I am not claiming uh, absolute certainty in any way, but I do believe, based on the things that I've been reading and the the commentators and scholars I've been uh, studying on this, that that this really isn't uh, the way that Mark ended, that it actually ended right there in verse 8. The evidence seems to point to this, that that, uh, verses 9 through 20 are not the original, and and, and one of the reasons you're reading it right there is that the oldest uh, manuscripts that we have don't include it. In fact, I've got a picture of one. Um, Here is uh, a picture of Codex Vaticanus, okay? Uh, That is the oldest complete Greek uh, manuscript of the New Testament that we have, and that is the last page uh, in the book of Mark, and you can read that, right? And uh, that's super helpful. Um, so we're, we're just going to have to trust uh, some scholars there. Uh, the, that is the oldest Greek manuscript, complete manuscript of the New Testament that we have, and the book of Mark ends right there, chapter, or chapter 16, verse 8. Not only the oldest, but also the, the second oldest that we have, uh, the Codex Sinaiticus, uh, doesn't include it either, and Uh, We also have a bunch of early church fathers like Clement of Alexandria, Eusebius, Jerome, all of these guys that are seeming to indicate that that verses 9 through 20 were not the way that Mark had originally ended the book. And and some of them have really done uh, a lot of study on the internal evidence, some of the vocabulary that's here and the style that's used that it really doesn't match up with Mark. It seems like uh, that's not what he included. So here's the question. I know you're like wrestling with this. If it's not the original ending, then why is it here, and where did it come from? Well, the best way uh, that I think I could answer that is uh, verse 8. If you look at it, um, it seems kind of like an abrupt ending. You felt that, right? Like that... Felt like kind of a weird spot to stop, and and in fact, it it is so abrupt uh, that it's likely uh, that the church early on was trying to attempt to really complete the book and and bring some of the details and and finish it off, and 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 what they used is actually very biblical, uh, because what they did was they're piecing together events from some of the other gospels that we see in Matthew and Luke and John and even in Acts, and and they're bringing all of those things together to form a more thorough and more uh, maybe satisfying more complete ending to the book so, so can, can I, I, I i've been thinking about you this week as we wrestle with this maybe maybe this is a little bit alarming to you and I get that okay I do understand that, that maybe you've never seen that maybe maybe you've studied this more than I have but um, I, I want to encourage you just a bit okay we can trust our Bibles we have over five Thousand Greek manuscripts, fragments and, and pieces and, and, and books, uh, over 5,000, just in Greek, 5,000 manuscripts. So we have great confidence in the accuracy of our Bibles that what we're reading is what the Holy Spirit inspired the authors to write in the original manuscripts, okay? I, just want, you, I want to encourage you in that. We can trust our Bibles. But it does seem like, likely, that Mark ends right here at verse 8. The women went out to anoint Jesus' body only to find the empty tomb and the angel telling them that he is risen. And honestly, the news was so shocking to them. It was too much. They're like, like, can can you believe this? this? This is incredible. And they're in awe. They're amazed i got to tell you, that's pretty on brand for any finite human who's encountering the supernatural power and authority of Jesus. Uh, that's a pretty normal response. In fact, uh, John MacArthur kind of uh, helps us see uh, this has been a normal response for people throughout the book of the Mark. He, he highlights some of these things. Uh, chapter 1, uh, the people were amazed at his teaching, and he's casting out demons. Chapter 2, he's healing the paralytic, and the people, it says, they're, they're amazed. They're like, we never saw anything like this. Chapter 4, he calms the storm and the disciples are afraid. Chapter 5, he raises a little girl from the dead, and they're, they're overcome with amazement. And at his as transfiguration, it says that those disciples that saw it, they were terrified. Chapter 15, again, you see Pilate, he's standing, he sees Jesus standing before him in silence as he's being accused, and even Pilate is amazed. Everybody's amazed at Jesus. And so is it any wonder that these women would respond this way after hearing the good news, the gospel preached from an empty tomb that they weren't expecting, the most incredible supernatural event in the history of the world, and that's how the book ends. This is amazing. Th- this is amazing. And-, and if we're left kind of like, you know, hanging and, and-, and wondering how they're going to respond, and, and what-, what happens next? What-, what happens next? The answer is up to you. The ball is in your court now. Mark has made his claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and he's proved it. So now what are you gonna do about it? It's your move. If Jesus is the Son of God who died and who rose again, that he really is alive, then then, then how do we respond to that? Church, how do we respond? What, what do we do? I encourage you with this. This is my heart. I hope that we... Love Christ and live sent. That's it. That we would come to this and we would see Jesus and say, Man, we need him. And the world needs Jesus. So it's time to make your next move. We've come to the end of the book of Mark. And I want to, I think this might be helpful. Um, I want to show you a video. This has been put together uh, by the guys at the Bible Project. I think that this is so helpful. And uh, maybe this will uh, help you just remember and kind of recap what has happened in uh, this gospel. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you will really catch the overall theme that Mark is putting here. This is not uh, just uh, a bedtime story. This is a call to action Okay, Uh, but let's let this kind of recap everything that we've been going over this last year. Watch this.
1: The Gospel of Mark is a book in the Bible about the life of Jesus. And the earliest reliable
2: tradition tells us that it was written by a guy named John Mark. Now, Mark didn't just grab a bunch of random stories about Jesus and throw them together. He's designed this book to address some really specific questions about whether or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So let's stop right there
1: because that's a term a lot of people like me aren't very familiar with.
2: Yeah, so the Messiah was a royal figure, sometimes called the Son of God, that Israel was expecting to come and set up a kingdom here on earth. And around the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by Rome and so many Jews were hoping that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans and rule as king. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans. In fact, he was killed by them. And that brings us to the very issues Mark is trying to get at in this book. So in the first half, he focuses on who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? And then in the second half, he's addressing how Jesus became the messianic king. And then right here in the middle of the book is this pivotal story that brings the two halves together and Jesus answers both of these questions. Okay, so let's talk about the first half of the book, who Jesus is. So Mark makes his beliefs about Jesus very clear from the first line of the book. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God.
1: One of the next stories is Jesus getting baptized and God's voice announces from heaven, this is my son. So, it couldn't be more clear. It's presenting Jesus as the Messiah.
2: Yes, but as you're reading through this first half of Mark, you'll notice something really interesting start to happen. Jesus is going about healing all these different people, and he's constantly telling them to keep quiet about who he is. This happens so many times in Mark's account. It's very strange.
1: Yeah, why keep it a secret?
2: So remember, lots of Jews had lots of different expectations about what the Messiah would be and do. And so Jesus doesn't want people to misunderstand what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah. And so with all that in mind, we come now to the pivotal story at the center of the book where Jesus takes his disciples away and he asks them, Who do you all say that
1: I am? And Peter says what everyone's been saying, you're the Messiah, the son of God. But then
2: something new happens because Jesus starts explaining to them how he's going to become the messianic king. And it is not what they expected. He says he's going to suffer and die and rule by becoming a servant. Or in his words, the son of man did not come to be served, but to become a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many.
1: Peter is startled by this and he rebukes Jesus because there's no way he's going to let Jesus die. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan, which
2: is really intense. It really is. But it highlights how important it is for Jesus that his disciples come to understand who he really is. And so here now in this pivotal section, Jesus tries three different times to have this conversation with them. And every time they respond in confusion and even fear.
1: Okay, so this launches us into the second half of the book where Mark addresses the question of how Jesus becomes the messianic king. It's the last week of Jesus's life. He goes to Jerusalem, gets in conflict
2: with the religious leaders, and gets arrested. And he's put on trial as someone who's claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's even given a crown and a purple robe like a king would get, but it is all a cruel joke. Then he's mocked and beaten and hung up on a cross where he dies. And it's here in this crucial scene that we meet a new character. A Roman soldier. Who suddenly gets everything that's going on. He says, surely this is the Son of God. Which is crazy. It's an enemy who's first putting it all together that Israel's messianic king is the crucified Jesus.
1: That's the structure of the book of Mark. But the book doesn't end with Jesus dead on the cross.
2: No. So on the third day, some women go to visit Jesus' tomb, only to find that it's empty. And then there's this angel standing there, instructing them to go and tell this good news that Jesus is alive from the dead. But instead, they run away and they don't tell anyone because they're afraid. And that's how the book ends.
1: Which is a really abrupt ending.
2: Yeah, it's so abrupt that later scribes did add an ending that brings more closure to the story. And you'll find that story in your Bible with a little footnote that says it was added much later. But Mark's a brilliant storyteller, and he's intentionally ended this book abruptly. So all through the book, the disciples have been confused about Jesus' plan to give up his life, the story in the middle and now right here at the end. It's like Mark is acknowledging just how startling this claim really is. And he wants you, the reader, to wrestle with it for yourself. Is this crucified Jesus really the Messiah that they've been waiting for?
0: We spent over a year in the book of Mark, and it just ends right there. Do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? And we believe that Jesus died for our sins, and the reason we know that our sins are paid for and that we can be forgiven is because... The tomb is empty. He is not dead. He is risen. You want to worship him together? Why don't we stand together? We want to sing to Jesus. Make sure we lift his
1: name high together.